If you would open up with me to the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and chapter 53, Isaiah chapter 53. As you are turning to that place, um, page 613, if you're using one of the, the pew Bibles, let me mention to you the name of Philip Bliss, Philip Bliss. Uh, the 1700s had several great hymn writers, Charles Wesley, John Newton, Isaac Watts. But in the 1800s, at least in my opinion, there are two names that must be at the top. One is Fanny Crosby. Uh, blind from the age of six months, Crosby wrote over 8,000 hymns. Redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Praise Him, praise Him. To God be the glory. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. A few of Fanny Crosby's hymns. But beside Fanny Crosby, we also have to put the name Philip Bliss. Uh, He was a partner to the evangelist Dwight Moody. And he would travel around with him, leading in worship and singing gospel songs. As a child, I remember singing his famous hymn about the Bible. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Beautiful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of life. Did you sing that growing up? Did you sing that? I I sung that all the time. Growing up in our church. Maybe you know the hymn, Dare to Be a Daniel, another famous Philip Bliss hymn. Uh, He also wrote the music to what we just sang. It is well with my soul. At age 37, on December 29th, 1876, he and his wife were traveling by train through Ohio. And just before they reached Estabula, Ohio... A trestle bridge collapsed and the train fell into a snowy ravine. Philip survived the initial crash, but he ran back into the train to save his wife and he never came out. The train was consumed in a raging fire. Ninety-two people were killed in what proved to be the worst American train accident of the 19th century. Found in his luggage, having somehow survived the fire, was a hymn that he had not yet put music to, but which he had written. And so a man named James McGranahan added the final music to this hymn of Philip Bliss. It says, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. For on the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save in his boundless love and mercy he the ransom freely gave. And you probably know the chorus. I will sing of my Redeemer with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. There is one other Philip Bliss hymn that we know quite well. We sing it often Um, It's a hymn he wrote based on our passage of Scripture this morning. And it is, in my opinion, one of the finest hymns ever written. And we also sung it 
earlier in this service. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. My favorite is the third verse. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I wonder if you've ever taken time to consider how amazing it is that the very Son of God should bear the name Man of Sorrows. That's exactly what we have here in Isaiah 53. Nowhere in all of the Old Testament do we see the gospel presented with more clarity than right here in Isaiah 53. And I want us to read just the first six verses this morning. So let's read the first six verses. This is the word of God. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Have you ever experienced a moment of nagging doubt about Christianity? Has there ever been a moment in your life when you just considered that maybe Christianity is a lie? Maybe we got it wrong. Christianity isn't true. Maybe, maybe this thing that we call Christianity is an old superstition. And we're being foolish to cling to these old beliefs in our modern civilized age. Mount Hermon, might I suggest that the very existence of Isaiah 53 is one of the greatest objective evidences for Christianity that you can point to. Because even the most liberal and critical of scholars acknowledge that Isaiah was written well before the time of Christ. Yes, they argue over the dates, especially of the second half of Isaiah, and when it was written and when we can place it. But even the most liberal of scholars would argue that the second half of Isaiah was written centuries before the coming of Christ. We know that Isaiah was written well before the time of Christ because Christ and his apostles quote it and quote it often as accepted scripture in the first century. 
And if you want to look outside the Bible, we have examples of of Jews, non-Christian Jews, unbelieving Jews who quote the book of Isaiah as scripture in the first century. It's just an objective historical fact. This book of Isaiah was written well before the time of Christ. And yet look at how precise Isaiah 53 is in describing How a servant of God would come and save God's people. The rejection of Christ by his people is here in verse 3. The fact that this servant would be pierced is found in verse 5. The fact that Jesus would be silent before his accusers is foretold in verse 7. The fact that he would be an innocent man, guilty of no crime, is given in verse 9. Some think verse 9 also prophesies that Jesus would be buried in a rich man's tomb, as he was. And then verse 10 promises the resurrection. It is simply inconceivable that someone could have so accurately depicted the details of the death of Jesus... I think 700 years before they happened. And yet here it is. If you want to reject Christianity, if you want to write Christianity off as a fairy tale, you have to come up with some explanation for Isaiah 53. And let me warn you, scholars have been trying to explain away Isaiah 53 for centuries and they can't do it. The bare facts are too indisputable. This passage could only have come to us by the inspiration of God who knows the end from the beginning. Now, I want us to focus this morning on this name of Christ, this title that we find in verse 3, Man of Sorrows. Why is that a fitting title for Christ? What sorrows did Jesus know? Well, our passage right here gives us four answers. And here they are. Number one, Jesus knew the sorrow of rejection. Rejection. Anybody in here ever been rejected? Anybody in here ever found yourself unaccepted, turned away? Have you ever known what it was to be despised by someone? Even hated by someone? Jesus was rejected because he spoke the truth. John 8, 40. Now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. John 8, 45. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. How frustrating. To be telling people the truth and yet to have the majority of people responding by calling you a liar. You ever been there? How discouraging to bear witness to something true and to have almost everyone not believe you. That was the daily experience of our Lord. Consider that he was rejected through mockery. And through laughter. 
One example was Luke 8, 52, 53. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing she was dead. Of course, there was that cruel game that the soldiers would play. When they would slap Jesus and then say, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? They took sport in their rejection of Jesus. They, they dressed Christ up as a silly king with a crown of thorns and a reed for a staff. And they laughed and they laughed. Jesus was rejected despite his many miracles. John calls them signs. Because these miracles were evidence that Jesus really was telling the truth and that he was who he claimed to be. But despite the signs, the people would not believe. John twelve thirty seven. though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. He was rejected. What is really astounding when you read the Gospels is how often people continued to demand more proofs from Christ. Though he gave evidence again and again and again of who he was and that what he was saying is true, people were never satisfied. They they never could accept him. They always needed one more evidence. The people admitted that he spoke with an authority like no one they had heard before. The people professed how amazing his miracles were, but they always needed one more, one more evidence. John 10, 24, Jesus, sorry, we read this. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Luke 11 verse 16 says, Others to test him kept seeking a sign from heaven. And it wasn't just the masses that were demanding more and more signs. It was even those who were part of Jesus' own ministry. After having walked and talked with Jesus for so long, One of those twelve apostles, Philip, said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Still not convinced, Jesus, show us the Father, then it will be enough. Jesus replied, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Even as Christ was suffering in agony, dying on the cross, The demand for more signs kept coming. One of the criminals being crucified beside him said, Are you not the Christ? Save us in yourself. Meanwhile, the soldiers called out from below, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. We're told that others passed by deriding him, wagging their heads. They were saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. And then on top of all of this, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. 
Satan was working through all of these people to tempt Jesus to come down off the cross. Satan was tempting Jesus to disobey his father. Pressure all around him from the soldiers, from the the, the criminals around him, from the the chief priests and the elders, from the crowd. And they're all saying, show us you're, you're the king. Prove it. Come off the cross. But you know, even if he had, they probably would not have believed. Because sign after sign after sign... And they continued to reject the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the sorrow of rejection, but he also knew the sorrow of grief. This is still verse 3, right? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Now, while Jesus was very much acquainted with grief, I do need to point out that almost everywhere else this word is used in the Bible, it is not translated as grief, it's translated as sickness. The idea here is that Jesus knew what it was to live every day among affliction, among sickness, among people who were not well. He was well acquainted with sickness. We think of doctors and nurses, even here in our own church, who they spend their days at Nash General Right, And they, they, they're constantly acquainted with sickness. That was Christ. As a real human being, Jesus himself was susceptible to sickness and to bodily ailments. But more than that, he was constantly surrounded by people who were sick. Jesus was well acquainted with the horrors of disease. They came to him from all over. 31 times in the Gospel of Mark alone, we read of a crowd following Jesus, listening to Jesus, but typically trying to be healed by Jesus. When the woman with a discharge of blood touched the garment of Christ, Jesus asked, who touched me? And the disciples scoffed because there were so many people crowded around him that they could not possibly know. This is how it was for Christ on a regular basis. Jesus often had to sneak off to places just to be alone because he was constantly being surrounded by people with all of their hurts and all of their pains. His life was a life lived among the hurting, a life lived among the sick, a life lived among the suffering of people. This is what Isaiah had promised in Isaiah 35, right? The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. But Jesus was confronted more than with just the daily sight of people suffering from all sorts of physical infirmities. He lived every day among people who were soul sick. When we see Jesus experiencing grief, it is typically because of the greater sickness he saw in the souls of the people he was seeking to care for. In fact, there were times when the Holy Spirit within him would not allow him to heal people's physical sicknesses because their hearts were so full of the poison of unbelief. So, for example, when he went to Nazareth, his hometown, we're told that he healed only a few people. Matthew says he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. 
And perhaps nowhere do we find Jesus grieving over the soul sickness of people more than in Luke 19 when he approaches Jerusalem. And we're told that he wept over that city, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Or Matthew 23, 27, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus knew the sorrow of grief. Third, Jesus knew the sorrow of bearing our guilt. He knew the sorrow of bearing our guilt. He he knew the sorrow of willingly bearing the guilt of sins he had not committed. Verse 6, Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our guilt, my guilt, your guilt placed on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. When we think of the many sorrows of Christ we have to think about the Garden of Gethsemane. He had already had a deeply emotional night in the upper room, but now in the garden, the great transfer takes place. Already in the garden, our sins, the weight of our sins, the guilt of our sins is being placed on the shoulders of Christ. Matthew tells us that he began to be sorrowful and very troubled. His inner anguish was so great as he bore our guilt that he began to sweat drops like blood. As J.C. Ryle said, The weight that pressed down on our Lord's soul that night was not the fear of death, not the fear of death's pains. The real weight that bowed the heart of Jesus was the weight of the sin of the world. Our Savior knew the sorrow of bearing our guilt. And then fourth and finally, Jesus knew the sorrow of the wrath of God. Of the wrath of God. He knew the sorrow of bearing the punishment that His people deserved. Look at verse 5. Verse 5. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We think of the wounds that came to Christ as the lashes tore the skin off his back. We think of the beating he took, being punched and being slapped, crushed by an entire battalion of 600 men in Pilate's praetorium. We think of his brow being pierced by the crown of thorns, his hands and feet being pierced by the nails, his dead body being pierced by the soldier's sword. He was pierced for our transgressions. And deeper than all of this physical agony was the experience of the wrath of God itself. 
We know what caused Christ the most anguish because he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not my God, my God, why the nails? Not my God, my God, why these thorns? No, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The soul of Christ experienced a darkness, a loneliness, a judgment of God that can only be called hell itself as he hung there on that cross. Much we talk of Jesus' blood, but how little is understood. Of his suffering so intense, angels have no perfect sense. Who can rightly comprehend their beginning or their end? It is to God and God alone that their weight is fully known. See the suffering Son of God, panting, groaning, sweating blood, boundless depths of love divine. Jesus, what a love was thine. Our Lord knew the sorrow of experiencing the very wrath of God. And so he was a man of sorrows. Mount Hermon, what is the application for us? What are the implications for you and for me that our Savior was a man of sorrows? Number one, see the love of Jesus Christ for sinners. Surely, the most amazing thing about the suffering of Jesus Christ is that He chose it. He chose it. He chose to bear every bit of it so that we would be spared the sorrow that we deserve. Most of us run away from pain. Most of us will do anything we can to avoid sorrow, to to avoid suffering. Jesus ran into the suffering, just like Philip Bliss running back into that train to save his wife. Just like so many first responders ran into the Twin Towers on 9-11, Jesus willingly ran towards the pain, into the sorrow, and he bore it all to save his bride, all who would ever believe on his name. How much more amazing this all is when we consider that Jesus is God himself. That God came And bore in our place unimaginable grief and anguish that we might be brought into eternal happiness and unimaginable joy. The invincible, immortal God who cannot feel pain and cannot die became a man so that he could feel pain, so that he could die for his people. Consider how heinous our sins have been. Consider how many times we've lied and cheated and lusted and acted in greed and selfishness. How many times we've manipulated other people, put ourselves before others, been bitter, broken the commands of God. We were unattractive to God. We were hearts full of rebellion and selfish and hatred. We in ourselves are as attractive to God as a pile of doo-doo is to you. 
Our sins cling to us as though we've been swimming in the sewers. And yet God still loved us this, loved us this much. That he would bear that for us. Is that not amazing? Dear church. Second, see that Jesus is particularly suited to be your comforter in the midst of your sorrow. Because Jesus has known a sorrow deeper than you can ever imagine, He is now particularly well suited to be your helper, your your rock in the midst of your anguish and your pain. Jesus has been deep into the minds of suffering. There is no nanny or crook of misery that he is not familiar with. He has been through the torment. He has been through the struggle. He has been through the hurt. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. And now he is able to strengthen you. And to care for you as you walk through your times of sorrow. He knows how to be tender with you. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick, the flame's almost out. But he will not quench it. Are you in the midst of sorrow this morning? Are you in the midst of trouble or anguish? Is there a tempest in your heart making you anxious or afraid? Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. The man of sorrows is now the Lord on his throne. Dear Christian, he is your Lord on that throne. He is your Lord, the lover of your soul, and he is now ready and capable and perfectly suited to be your helper. Draw near to him in prayer. Open up his word. He is the wonderful counselor. By his word and by his spirit, he can help you. Third implication. See that following Jesus means bearing sorrow for the sake of God and God's people. Following Jesus means bearing sorrow for the sake of God and God's people. Jesus was a man of sorrows because of his love for his father, because of his love for God's people. He bore the suffering to glorify the mercy and the grace of His Father. He bore the suffering to redeem and care for God's people. And now, having walked this path of suffering, Jesus says to you and me, follow me. If you would be my disciple, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. If you have any part in Christ, then your life must bear in some smaller measure something of the sorrow that Christ knew. If you care anything about the glory of God, if you care anything about the welfare of God's people, there is a cross you will carry because you cannot show love to God without sacrifice. And you cannot care for God's people without self-denial. 
You cannot love God's people and care for them without giving of your time, your strength, your emotion, your resources, your... Moreover, being a follower of Jesus means that we choose not only to bear our own sorrows, but we intentionally choose to help our brothers and sisters in Christ carry theirs. We move towards the pain. Love compels us to move towards the pain, to help one another bear it. And so we weep with each other. You weeping with Holly and her boys. Grieving with them. We hurt together. And yet even as we experience sorrow in this life, we remember what a privilege it is to walk the path of our Savior. Yes, He was brought low. And then He was exalted. We will carry our cross for a time and then in the grace and wonder of God, we too will be exalted. Weeping may tarry for the night. Joy comes in the morning. Fourth implication. See how evil it is to refuse this gift of salvation. Do you see this? Do you see how much sorrow and suffering Christ willingly endured that sinners would be saved? Has anyone ever loved you so much? Has anyone endured so much for you? Not even the love of a mother can compare with this love. So what a terrible, evil, wicked insult to say to Jesus, no thank you. You can keep your gift of salvation. I don't want it. I'll live my life my own way. It is no wonder that God the Father threatens terrible things upon those who spurn the Son of God and reject Him. Evil can reach no greater heights than to spit in the face of the one who loves you so deeply and has given up so much for you. Hebrews 2 verse 3 says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Are there any unbelievers in this room? Are there any refusing to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? Why will you not turn from your sins in the light of such great love? Why will you not entrust yourself to the care of a Savior who is this wonderful? Throw your pride in the dust. Turn against the sins in your life that are holding you hostage. Give your love and allegiance to Christ. Trust Him. Be baptized in His name. Learn from His Word. Follow Him. And so now, last implication. Let us come to the Lord's table with deep humility and great gratitude. Because Jesus is here with us in His Spirit this morning. Jesus is in this room. He's, he's dwelling in so many of our hearts. Because two or more gathered in his name, this is now a holy place. His table is set before us. He is the host. He invites us to have fellowship with him. It's 
only by his broken body, it's only by his poured out blood that we have fellowship with him and with God and with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we come to the table, we ought to come with deep humility. Let all of our boasting be thrown in the dirt. Let us be completely emptied of self-love. And let us be completely full of love for Jesus Christ. Let us come with gratitude knowing that our debt was greater than we could pay, but he has paid it all. And all he asks of us is that we love him. We have fellowship with him. That we be a part of his bride. Let us come to the table of the man of sorrows. Let's pray.